Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. Today's episode, this board isn't big enough for all of us. Today we're talking about area control games. Today's review will be Rising Sun by Eric Lang and Simon. Joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I finally, uh, yesterday night, uh, managed to get uh, new shelving uh, for, for games, which obviously will, will help with the house not being a mess, but also it will help with, with playing stuff. Because I have noticed that out of the eye, out of the mind, or whatever the, the saying is, <laughs> um, because uh, games that we cannot see on the shelves don't get, get played much. Um, and so that, but mostly it's a relief. Uh, we have, we moved in five months ago already. Yeah. With the pandemic. Oh, wow. Twice, yeah. And um, one room has been boxes of games and books. Um, so hopefully at least the games will have space. I have the sneaky suspicion that the space that should have been games and books will become just games and we have to <laughs> need more shelving, but it's a step in the right direction. So I have a question. Yes. It's a very controversial question. How are you going to be organizing your games? Are you going to keep your regular separations? Or are you going to do it all by color or alphabetically? Or <laughs> So color is absolutely fantastic. Uh, but that would mean that we can never ask a friend to go get the game. Um, because you need <laughs> you to know. You could ask me to go get a game. I know what color games are. Yes, I mean, friends that are not as crazy as we are about games. Uh, like, <laughs> to, oh, can I get that game that I played that once and they might not remember the color of the cover. No, sure. um, uh, I really like alphabetical, mm-hmm. but we used to, uh, before actually we met you, we had everything in alphabetical order uh, when we had fewer games. I found that that's very good to find the game. You just go to the letter and pick it up uh, and also takes away any question of primacy of one game over another. But I found that often, as we were saying when we were discussing choosing what to play, being able to say, okay, we played a lot of co-ops. Let's go and look at the Euros or vice versa, oh, okay, we need something light. Let's go to the light thing. Or um, Mike likes games about movie and stuff. Maybe it's, it's a good occasion to get out something very thematic, even if it's not the, the most uh, deep game ever. And having those divisions will be uh, useful. However, while our Euro two-player and co-op games are well-organized and each in their alphabetical order, the rest used to be the rest. Yep. <laughs> and it felt the, the empty spaces in the old place. Now that we will have a more unified shelving, it is a question that I have been struggling with, but just having them not on the floor seems already a better <laughs> Uh You will see uh, that one of the big things that change is that our... Euro are still in alphabetical order, but instead of having Feld and everything else, now they have Feld, Sham Phillips, the Italians, and everything else. And each oh. section is in alphabetical order. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
also, but this is probably not new to people, it's new to me. This year, we are trying to get rid of games that don't get played enough. What? We already get, we already get rid of games that we don't like. Uh, we are definitely not collectors. If a game doesn't jive with us, it goes. But this year, we're making a conscious effort of games that, sure, I consider them fine games, but if we haven't played them in three years, so we played it one time in the last year and a half or something like that, it's probably not a game that uh, we want to keep. Or games that whenever we think of playing that, we'd rather play something else. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, The King is Dead or Ulm, both games that... On their own, they're absolutely fine. But whenever we have the moment to play a Euro, something else tends to get played. And mm-hmm. so we will see. We'll see how this year shapes out for them. I liked The King is Dead. You're also I... not allowed to get rid of Ulm until I play it. Oh, that's absolutely fine. I will gladly <laughs> play it. Uh, Ulm, I am less inclined to, to give it away because I really like it. But it doesn't get played enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are others that probably don't get played enough, but that I am very affectionate to. Uh, for example, Murano. We don't play it often, but I know that one is not going away. I love uh, Murano. Yeah, uh, me too. And so even if it's not played often, um, there are others that are in a different category. Uh, and maybe they are light, but not light enough that you want to play it with people who haven't played games before, but too light for when you want um uh, a more serious game, so there will be some some evaluation. These games better step it up. <laughs> so, since you can't see all your games, what have you been playing recently? Yeah, so, as you know, I sometimes do um, online video review on YouTube, and so from time to time, I receive games to review. Uh, which, since my my series is very small and not significant at all, there are never big titles, right? Um, so I got Escape Tales: Children of the Wormwoods. Oh, you did? Yeah, but Bird and Dice, which I think you will like a lot. I own um, it. But, oh, you own it. I think you you both you both have you played it yet? So we did the like opening scenario, the prologue, right? Yeah, and Scott was overwhelmed. <laughs> I must say, I want to keep playing it, uh, not only to to be able to give um, a fair review to it, but also because it's not bad. Um, Yeah. But I think that I am not the perfect target for it because what it proposes to be, Children's of uh, Wilmwood, which is by Bowden Dice, um, is proposed to be an escape room with a story. Mm -hmm. And... um, there are two things that don't work in its favor with me. The first one is the story sometimes gets in the way of the escape uh, room part. Uh, like there, they have a co- you are working as a group as a cooperative game, but you have a character in the story that it's all of you. It's your character, so it's basically a solo game that you play with multiple players, mm-hmm. um, and. This character has stats and he can dress. So they go with the story. It's not just that you read some story. There is an element of story game, which sometimes interferes more than anything else with with the escape um, room. 
On the other hand, and this is actually probably a good thing for the game, uh, but not for me, it reads very much like an escape room in that it has the problem that they have with escape rooms, that the puzzles are interesting. Each puzzle is clever and uh, you can solve it with information given, but is not immediate, right? It's not a performatory um, Oh, perfunctory, I do this. Oh, yeah, let's do this and this. Just take our time. It takes a little bit to figure out what the puzzle is. But that's what I don't like in escape <laughs> rooms either. It's just a puzzle after another. Um, yeah. And the reasons for the puzzles are, are not there. This said, again, I want to play more, but it sounds like people who actually really are into escape rooms should like it because that's the same impression I have of escape rooms. I read, oh, there is this lock. How do we open this lock? Well, with this combination, why? Well, I don't know, because that's the thing. And then there is another lock inside the lock, and this is opened by collecting the color pegs. And why? Because there are color pegs, right? And it's a little bit of the same in the game. Um, so what was your, beside the too much stuff, how was your impression of it? I really liked it. I thought it was a little dungeon crawly. Not that you were fighting things, but like the way you were updating your character as you were going. And I thought it was interesting. I liked the the story part of it. I thought it seemed very, like a very unique storyline. Like it was um, trying to create like this this world that, you didn't know anything about and so it was like exploring that for the first time like it kind of felt like silent hill or those kinds of video games like resident evil those things that were are very like storyline based and then there's a game it yeah. felt like the first time that that you were exploring that kind of uh, uh a land it felt very uh flushed out it felt very like you had secrets that you needed to uncover that will make sense as you play. I really thought it was it was smart and just a a lot of fun, but I have so many games. <laughs> Not enough time. Yeah, you hit on something that uh the story has a very nice premise. Uh and it's right there in the in the prologue. I think it's even in the in the rule book. There is a city or an area that has been taken over by these basically Plants of evil, something like that. Yes. These these womb wine um, vines that are taking over the city, and so it's dangerous to go anywhere. People have disappeared. No one knows exactly what they are, and that works very well. Uh, the writing is fine. I don't think is a tainted gray level, but it's not one of those that you go, oh, couldn't they get a writer? I mean, it's it's well decently written. Mm-hmm. And but I do like that they are trying to keep going the the small cap story of the the you are now in this place and you're doing this thing, but also the overarching theme of you are trying to solve this big problem and mystery. But also from the get go, you have characters that you care about and characters that are your enemies, and they have some personality, right? Um, I remember the two characters, the the the. The love interest and uh, uh, the the big enemy, uh, and I remember something about them, something that they did. Right, while often characters, even in games that I like a lot, uh, they are just uh, there to do something. Like I couldn't name uh, a, a non-playing character in in Eldritch Horror, 
Um, there is one, but on, I only know him from, from Arkham Horror because it's just someone who appears and gives you a sword or someone mm-hmm. who, while here, the, the characters have their personality, they have their, their quirks. And I, I look forward to, to keep trying it. Anna liked it a lot. Um, she, this is really what, what she likes. Um, and so I look forward to, to trying it again. Again, I think that the, the worry about making it a story led them to put a little bit of rules that were not needed. All of the action things, you have action disc that you place on a little map of the location. That was probably uh, superfluous, but the game it looks nice. And it looks like this is the third one that they've released of this. You played one of them before? No, no, no. I'm saying this is the third one that they've released. No, no I get that. I was wondering if you had tried any of the ones before. Oh, no. This mm-hmm. is the one that's best rated, but... We shall see. And that was um, Escape Tales Children of Wormwoods from Jacob Caban and Bartos. Oh, no. Idzikowski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Board and Dice. Okay. What else have you played? I am still so excited about Red Rising. So everyone has been drawing the comparison that Red Rising is similar to Fantasy Realms. So, I purchased Fantasy Realms. Fantasy Realms. Yes, it's a card game. It's um it's basically hand management the game. Um I really like it. Uh Scott enjoyed it. He said it didn't hurt him, but he also didn't feel satisfied after playing it. And I think that comes from playing it as a two-player game. Because the rules are a little different. Um, But it's very, very easy to learn. You draw a card, you discard a card. That's the whole game. And then you either are drawing it from the deck blind, or you're drawing it from the uh, display of discarded cards. So um, it has an indeterminate number of rounds because it, the game ends when, based on your player count, how many cards are in the discard pile. Is basically you're trying to manage your hand and make the combination of the cards in your hand work. There's lots of different combos that are possible. Um, certain cards will say, oh, you need this book, or or you need this card, or you need this type of card, or this works with this, but it doesn't work with this. So it has, they have bonuses, they have penalties, they have uh, lots of different things going on in them. And we played it three times. The first two times we realized we were playing it incorrectly. Uh, because we were like, this game is ending so so quickly. We were not following the two-player rules exactly correct. So I think that the game is is a lot of fun. I'd be very interested to play it with more people. It's a lot of tough choices, even though you are only dealing with a hand of seven cards. You're still trying to optimize what kind of score you're getting from them. And I really liked it. I I don't know if you guys would like it, because it is the drawing from one deck, and some cards are just better than others. 
Mm-hmm. It, I have beside that I have two obje- two objections. First, it's ugly. Um, very. No, it looks like they couldn't pay anyone who had been alive in the last thirty years. Therefore, they went to someone who died in nineteen eighty one. Hey, um, this is from two thousand seventeen. Oh yeah, so it's three years ago, and also it four has, four years ago. It, it looked like the the graphic design uh, that I could make, which is terrible because I am terrible. This said, beside the drawing from the same card, one more serious concern that I have about me ever trying this. Uh, so the cards only do things when you finish the game, right? So you collect the cards, but they don't do anything when you play them. You right. just so you're just set collecting cards. Right. I mean, it might be that is one of those that from the rules that doesn't give justice. It it sounds like they took games that had uh, set collection as an interesting element and decided, well, let's reduce it to just set collection so it's not interesting anymore. It, it it really looks like not a hobby game, basically. It's really? get cards that together score points. Sure, they call it wizards, and instead of giving a straight gives you plus five points, it gives you plus 20 if you have a dragon. But it's basically the concept of all of those traditional card games where we are collecting certain suits. Yeah, it's more complicated but it, you have no real interaction. Um, the cards are just point repositories. I am mm-hmm. really, really surprised that you liked it, actually. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, again, sometimes games, you can read about them, read the rules, look at them, and then they don't click until you play them. So uh, I am certainly not... Um, very solid in my opinion, but I'm going to give you so much grief for this. (laughs) So um, the reason why they say uh, Red Rising is like similar to this is because it's the same sort of deal. You're trying to maintain a hand of cards that at the end of the game, you score the hand of cards, but the difference is you play them to specific areas which do something you also um they have a power that you use when you play them so it's not only the combo it's also um, what you do right yeah exactly and as i said the only perplexity that i have about the red rising is well not it's not a perplexity i didn't like the book as much as i expected but with red rising i'm excited to try it i i am curious i'm cautious because as i said uh uh, Stone, Stone, Stegmaier, uh, Stegmaier's designs are not as uh, 100% hit with me as they are with other people. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I, I love sight, and that's is. So I'm certainly curious about that. But again, because you do things right, there is a board, and it. Yes, the end goal is collecting the cards, but you have to do things to to have the cards that are strong, not just keep them in your hand. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah, it has... I'm excited for that. I got this just because people were talking about it and drawing comparisons, and I liked it. So I'm very hopeful that Red Rising will hit check even more boxes for me. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, Fantasy Realms. 
from Bruce Glasgow from WizKids. Yeah, and it doesn't have an artist. The artist is by a studio, which is called Octographics. So basically, they did the graphics and used some dead person art, I'm sure. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. 100%. Okay. So another game that I played, I need to, to take us back a little bit to uh, Young Jackie. Uh, before discovering, basically, modern games... Um, I played a lot of two games at home um, with my friends before, basically before Pillars of the Earth. Um, and Risk? Risk, not so much. My brother was super into Risk, so I would play it with him. But we played a lot of Trivial Pursuit and Taboo. And oh. Taboo, which obviously I, I used to play in Italian, um, I got, oh, and Boggle as well. And I got very into it. I was very fast, very good at it. Um, and recently I played a game, and, and Taboo is one of those games that I don't dislike, right? It's still a game that is dear to my heart, and if someone wants to play it, I play it, until the game that I'm going to talk about, which for me has completely killed Taboo. Uh, I mean, Taboo is still the same game, so it's not that it got worse uh, all of a sudden. But this has everything that I like in Taboo and and completely uh, takes turns it on its head. It is by Czech Games Edition, by John Resna, Martin Krabolek, and Mikhail Pozarek, and it's Trap Words. So Trap Words, I stumbled upon it and I ordered it because it was super cheap and I wanted to try it. Uh, so for those of you who haven't played Taboo, first of all, uh, good for you. You are certainly original. Um, <laughs> so Taboo is a game in which you get a card with a, a few related forbidden words. So, for example, you need to uh, to uh, the, the if the word is car, the the, pro, the forbidden words will be vehicle and gas and driving and things like that. And you're trying to make other people guess the word without using any of the taboo words. And you're trying to do this as multiple times as you can inside the timer. If you say a wrong word, you don't get the point. Trap words takes that very simple concept and turns it on its head. So it has some overarching rules on how complexity goes up. You're walking into a dungeon and dungeon becomes more dangerous. Therefore, the, the challenge becomes more difficult. But in practical terms, what it means is that there is a number. At the beginning of the game, it's usually two or three, and towards the end, it's going to be seven, eight, nine, something like that. You, you, see, you as a team, it's a game played in teams, you see a word, and that's the word that the clue giver of the other team will have to make the other team guess. It's like in Taboo. So, for example, you see the word goblin, because there are two sets of words. One is fantasy-related, the other is not. So it could be goblin, or it could be door. Um, so you, you see the word goblin, and you know that uh, if I'm playing against you, my team knows that you, Nathan, will have to make your team guess the word goblin. So we write down on a piece of paper a certain amount, that number that I was talking about at the beginning, of words which are now trap words. So for goblin, we might put monster, humanoid, and green, something like that. And then we give you the word goblin but not the list of trap words. And then you have the time. You just need to make a, your team guess that word. You have a timer, but it's not that you're trying to do as many words as you can. You're just trying to make them guess goblin. 
However, you cannot say any word or form of the words that we mark down and that you haven't seen. Mm. Which becomes a very interesting example of, well, it still has the thing of taboo. The, the beauty of taboo is that you're trying to say familiar things by going non-familiar routes. So for a car, you go, well, that metallic box in which you propel yourself towards the <laughs> destination, right? That thing is still there because you are trying to avoid certain things. But with the fact that the words are limited, they can only give a certain amount of trap words, but you don't know what they are, there is mm. also quite a bit of double thinking. So with Goblin, I, I chose a very straightforward example, but sometimes you have a word and you can go, oh, this thing relates to this or it relates to that. So with the door, um, do you want to go with the idea of a house and the four all of that, or you're thinking of a gate and therefore magical opening and things like that. What have they blocked? And also, they cannot have blocked everything. So right. maybe if you have whale or dolphin, they didn't put C because they thought, well, obviously Nathan will not say C when, when discussing a quasi-fish. Uh, and I have a theory that cetaceans should also be fish, but I know they're not, so don't give me good. But you might say, well, I cannot go see. Or did they really waste a trap word on a word so obvious like see? Uh, and and so there is that double pull of whether you want to go there or not. You're doing this under a time constraint because you have 45 seconds from when you see the word to when you have to make it guess. Uh, the other team has five, your team has five guesses and you keep going. Basically, each team plays every round and if you succeed you move forward if you don't you don't you reach a, a monster at the end of the dungeon which adds one condition for example uh you only have three gases or you have to speak very fast or things like that um it's fun it's fast uh it's much more clever than it looks i think when i started reading it it looked like okay it's another version of taboo but the beautiful thing is that it keeps you engaged mm -hmm. um because when you are not the team guessing, you are still there, but you're not simply checking a list like in Taboo of, well, let's see if he gets one of them wrong. You are involved because, oh, you he made just, the list. Yeah, and often is, oh, he said that word that we considered and didn't put down, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because, and, and I really like it. And also before they start, you have this moment of, uh, it's not supposed to be too long. You're not supposed to discuss it. You just write them down and maybe cancel one and write another one in. So your team is concocting the the the, the list. And it works perfect at four. It's probably going to be good, I think, with six. With more than that, uh, the box says that you can play up to eight plus. So you can play any number, basically. Uh, but I think once you're over three per team... Uh, you are huddling around a, a paper list, right? So if you have, yeah. or either you split into rooms and then you go discuss, but then it becomes not what the game is supposed to be. I think four is the perfect spot uh, and six is going to be absolutely fine. More would be, much like I feel about code names. I actually don't find code names very exciting when there are five people per per side because someone needs to, to, to make a decision at some point. Um, so... Uh, this is Trap Words. And that is by... I already said that. 
It's John Bresna, Martin Krabalek, and Mikhail Pozarek <laughs> for a games edition. So, yeah, it looks cute. I like Taboo. Um, I think it's it would be interesting to try. Um, I also played Herloff. Never heard of it. By Alexander Niepkins and Inga van Dasselaar from Jolly Dutch Productions. How do you spell it? H-E-R-R-L-O-F. If you had a problem with the last game, I can't wait to hear what you say about this game. (laughs) So, Herloff is basically a trick-taking game. Which is more than you can say for the one before. Ouch. (laughs) Anyway, so Herloff is a trick-taking game where you get 15 cards and then you flip over a card and that's the trump. And then based on the trump and your hand, you try and predict your score. And then you um, play out tricks. And then at the end, you reveal your predictions and you determine your score. If you're correct, you get 10 additional points. It's the first person to 50. Each trick that you win is worth a point. So that's the whole game. So I... uh, Some of the cards do little different things. There are cards that are not numbers that, like, destroy the trick. Or um, it's the lowest possible card in the game, but... Um, the loser of the trick gets to start the next trick. First of all, Tristam Rossin, who's the artist, did, I think, an excellent job. This is charming. It might not be my style. It goes with this. It tries to keep in line with actual Viking art, uh, the, the some of the stylistic choices. but it's And the graphic design is super cute uh, for a game this simple. Um and second, from what you describe it, it's a trick-taking game, which is probably not my favorite uh, style, but that's more a me problem than the game problem. It looks, uh, from your description, it looks straightforward enough. So if you like trick-taking games, I don't see why you wouldn't like this. It adds a little bit of prediction. The cards are clear. At least you play them in a trick. You are trying to do something. Um <laughs> No, I'm 100% serious. That's probably why you don't like taking game that much because you tend to do a lot of the same thing, playing a card and trying to win the trick at the right moment. Yeah. But this sounds at least as good as any other uh, trick-taking game, right? It has everything works fine. And I'm looking at different images. The cards look nice on their own. They look nice in the end. They do look nice on the board. Uh, oh, sorry, on the table. Um, yeah, I mean, this, I, I don't think I would uh, go hunt, hunt it down, but this, I have no qualms with it. No qualms at all. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so Scott does not like trick-taking games either. So mm-hmm. um, that was fun. <laughs> oh, Scott! <laughs> My hero. Uh, but yeah, so he... Didn't really care for it because he doesn't like trick-taking games. Um, 
which oddly though he didn't mind Fox in the Forest, which I feel like is a very similar game. If you like Fox in the Forest, uh, this would be something very. It's it's it has a similar feel to it, right? You're playing tricks. You get points based on how many tricks you're getting because, but in Herloff, you are you can get bonus points based on your own prediction versus in Fox in the forest. It's you're trying to either get some or none at all. And so that makes it very clear um, as to what number you're going for versus in this game, you're like, Oh, the, um, my opponent just started losing tricks. Does that mean that they don't want any more? Does it mean that, their hand is just bad, so it's a little different with the the secret number, basically. Yeah, uh, I think that one of the things that might you might have liked more is that again, Fox in the Forest. I also liked it quite a bit. I almost bought it. You each card does something. Almost each card does something. Yeah, uh, so there are four cards in this uh, four number cards that also do stuff. Oh, okay. So, so that could be could be good. This. Uh, one of, as you know, one of the episodes that I want to do is uh, good games with a bad name, and this would be up there because <laughs> even now that I have it in front of me, every time I turn my eyes away, uh, I would have a problem re- re- recouping the, the title. <laughs> <laughs> but but it looks nice. But yeah, so that was her laugh. Okay, um, so. Yeah, I played another couple of things, but why don't we move forward to uh, whether you have anything uh, exciting on the horizon. I have been, uh, as always, clamoring for new games, but I'm trying to stay uh, in line. Um, One thing that you you mentioned to me, and at first I was... I, I think I'm in the same position as I was before, is you have been eaten, which is currently on Kickstarter. So the art looks interesting. The idea is charming. Is if I'm not mistaken, you are a miner that goes into a beast to mine, and you risk being digested by the beast. Um, which sounds like an original, fresh, different theme. Uh, not particularly sanitized, but. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing that really intrigues me is that it plays uh, two players. Or you can play it solo with either side being played solo, which is interesting. Which also means that you can play it with zero players. Yes. <laughs> an interesting gimmick. Uh, all of that, the reason I'm not 100% on board is that the gameplay sounds... The description of the gameplay sounds just okay. You are lining up cards. Okay. I will describe it for you. Okay. So, one person so- plays the miner. You're going in. You're trying to get different gems there are two copies of each gem in the in the monster so if one gets destroyed you have to get the other one um because the game ends in one of three ways one the miner collects all eight of the gems that they're trying to discover which um means that you get extracted from the monster because at that point it's profitable enough for the company to extract you uh two the monster eats you. A bacteria reaches a certain level 
um, if you've been attacked by the same color bacteria over and over, um, the bacteria has disintegrated your suit and you're dead. The third way is if you don't get all of the the gems and you make it to the end of the monster, um, the other end of the monster, and (laughs) you um, come out the other side, uh, then you are compared uh, points-wise versus who did better, either the monster or you from the whole encounter. Okay. The interesting part about it is that the monsters playing from their own deck, which so they need to get certain bacteria in a row to unlock certain powers, or um, the other thing that they need to consider is that the number of gems that they have in their stomach correlate to the the powers that they can get because they cost a certain number of energy. So. Okay. Uh, you have to have a certain number of gems in the belly, or you have to uh, cycle through cards by putting them at the bottom of the deck in order to meet the energy requirements. Then you can get these upgrades, which change certain things. Like it makes the certain bacteria more effective against people, or you can downgrade an upgrade which uh there are upgrades that the the miner can get uh and there are tools that come through the belly because you're not the first person to go through this monster um other people have met an unfortunate demise but that's good for you because then you can steal their tools um if you get certain upgrades so yeah i'm extremely excited about this game i think it's going to be a very fun uh, experience. I do think I might end up playing, be playing it more solo than as a two player, but that doesn't bother me at all. So no zero players for you? <laughs> no, I will not just run run the game. But I mean, I, I might try it once just to see what it's about because it sounds funny. I'm actually weirdly weirdly lured to that. <laughs> it it has some some charm for me the idea of a, a board game that plays itself um i don't know <laughs> so yeah that is so you've been eaten from designer scott alms and from ludi creations and it's on kickstarter and it will still be on kickstarter when this uh, episode is published so check it out um i am in it at the fancy version because what other version is there fair enough anything (laughs) else that you're excited about i mean i already talked about red rising last time and this time but i've actually pre-ordered red rising so uh that will be coming next month so we're moving forward from from excitement to excitement and bot okay and (laughs) i already mentioned a few things uh i am getting too much into kickstarter i know i know i'm preaching to the choir here uh but uh, <laughs> let's leave it at that uh then let's not go into the nitty-gritty and um of of kickstarter and let's get to instead a game that we did kickstarter um kickstart i guess a long time ago rising sun which is our uh game review for uh, today um so Rising Sun 
uh, it's a big game and uh, I won't try to get into all of the rules, but in general, you play through three ages, through three years. At the beginning of each year, there is a tea ceremony in which you basically decide who to be allied with, which is a game mechanic effect. You share some powers and you cannot fight an, an ally. Uh, then you go through seven rounds of um, I choose you follow. Basically, the player who's turn it is will choose one of four action from a stack, so you don't have always full choice. Um, there are sorry five actions, and you will draw four and choose one. Um, and you can move monster, move uh, stuff from the table, recruit new powers and new monster, uh, summon new creatures and uh, forces on the board. You can harvest from the the things that you are controlling on the board, and you can betray, which means you replace a couple of figures on the board and you uh, break alliances. Through all of this, you are also controlling temples that will give you bonuses after the third, the fifth, and the seventh action of each round. At the end of each year, you get into the war phase, which takes at least as long as the action. So it's not just a resolution. It's, an, it's a very important part of the game. And for each uh, area in which there are at least two players who are not allied, you fight, um, you count up strength, but then the way it's resolved is you do secret bidding on certain categories behind the screen. You're bidding for the right to take other... Um, people's hostage so if they have a big monster taking it hostage takes out all of that strength you are bidding for the right to add your ronins which are your mercenaries that you can use multiple times during a war but you need to win the right to use them uh, you can commit seppuku which means all of your forces go away but you get points for that and you can win imperial poets we simply give you points depending on the amount of slaughter that happened in that battle a couple of interesting things ties are broken in this and throughout the game by honor which is a track in which you move back and forth throughout the game it's very dynamic and you are trying to stay on top of other people unless you're playing specifically a strategy that calls you to be lower but then you will lose all ties and the other interesting thing is that whenever you lose a battle Everyone who loses a battle gets wiped out, but also gets money. The money that the winner spent are, is divided among the losers. You do this for all of these uh, provinces where there is fight. You're trying to collect win tokens for each uh, thing. You do this through three years. And at the end of the third year, you count up the points. There are points that you gain from a bunch of different effects. A lot of the points will also come from these conquest token you're trying to have a lot of them and different ones showing that you have fought in different places and all of this is wrapped up uh, with uh, amazing miniatures a lot of different powers that you can draft in these cards that you can buy but also in very asymmetric player powers at the beginning i think rule wise obviously this is not enough to be able to play the game but i think we, we touched <laughs> upon most of it yes Okay, so let's start. I, I blabbed enough. Why don't you start with what is your general feeling of the game? Uh, again, beside the, all of the details that we'll get into it. So I really like area control games. I like dudes on a map games. Um, this is a very good representation of a little of both. So it is so cool to get accumulate different powers and 
form alliances, and it has so many different mechanics that you're like, oh my gosh, they threw too many things, but somehow it just all works. Everything is smart. Everything is there for a reason, and I like everything from the variable variable player powers because then you are trying different strategies to um, the different... uh, there are different sets that you can do within the game. Um, so there's one that focuses heavily on monsters. There's one that focuses heavily on the the kami, which are the uh, gods that you're praying to in the temple. So there's so many different things that the game, even though it's the same game, essentially, you are playing vastly different games every time. But... It's just so good. Like, there's so many things going on, and it's very overwhelming to some people. I actually sat down and taught this to uh, three other people um, a few years ago now. Uh, And I told them, I said, this is going to take some explanation. This is not something that I can sit here and explain to you very quickly. But I promise you, it will be worth it. It's a great game. Uh, And then I explained it all. We started playing. And two turns in, one person decided to quit. So then we had to completely stop. But the other people were so enamored. They were like, let's just start over. Let's start over. And at three people, I don't think it's very good. um, Because you're... You're constantly leaving someone out of an an alliance. Yep. So I was very hesitant for them to receive that as their first gameplay. So we just postponed it. And unfortunately, we postponed it. And then we never played it. So... um... (laughs) I think you you hit on uh, multiple things that I completely agree. The way the asymmetric player powers work... um, works very well it's something that i don't like in games that are all about balance and and uh, measurement but this is different right this is about fighting and conflict and so the different player powers work very well in a way you we will get to the comparison with blood rage but here you start with a little bit of your power already right that already orients you but doesn't determine what you will be doing and it has this feeling of control, not chaos. There is a lot going on, but it's never chaotic. I think it it is um, a little fragile on a few things. First, the number of players. I feel very strongly that I want to play it with four. I will play with five. I could be roped into playing it with three. With six is way too long. At five, it's already very heavily long. And You played it with six? I never played it with six. I don't want to. Oh, it's Um, so good, though. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I doubt it. I have another problem with, with six. But the one thing that makes me confused is the next thing we usually say in our review is the main hook. And here, as you mentioned, it's very hard to say it. Is it the beautiful monsters? Sure, but they have a somewhat limited effect on the game. Is it the I, follow, I choose you follow, which is a mechanic that some people rave about and I really like and it works very well in this game, but that doesn't explain the game completely. Is it the war part with the with the bidding? I think that what makes uh, Rising Sun so peculiar um, is that 
there are such strong mechanical parts. And as you said, there are parts that in other games, they will be the game, right? And here are just something. There is the uh, area controller on the temples, these temples that constantly switch uh, control, either because someone adds a priest or because you go up and down on the tie-breaking honor track. That could be almost a game in itself. So mm -hmm. I'm very hard-pressed to say what the main hook is. The main hook is probably the interaction of so many things in what is, in the end, a very straightforward goal. Dominate your opponent on the board, right? Yep. Uh, and I, I find that what you were saying, that there are so many things that get together so well and so harmoniously, it looks like it shouldn't be. And even when you read the rule book, which is very clear, very well done, but you go like, oh, wait, there is also this thing and there is also this thing, or when you explain <laughs> it, but it comes together very well. In a way, I think that it makes it almost feel like it's not the kind of game that it is. It's more elegant than, than it looks. Um, and I, I'm obviously not in the camp of people who think that miniatures supplement games that don't have enough depth. I think that's that's crazy. Uh, that's like, like saying that if you have a car with a good exteriors, it must have a bad engine. That's crazy talk. But... This this is this it's very deeper and I have a hard time saying what what is uh, the hook. We didn't talk yet. I mean, we mentioned it, but about what draws people to Rising Sun. I think the theme and components. Yes. Uh, take it away, Nathan. <laughs> so, as far as components goes, this game has everything. That being said, the the deluxe Kickstarter version is much superior and much sought after compared to the version that made retail. So there are lots of chunky plastic pieces as far as the little Ronin that you have that are uh, temporary like helper tokens that you can use. There are the actual like uh, action selection tiles, which are are nice and chunky plastic pieces, and the miniatures. How can we not talk about the miniatures in this game? It is from Simon, which right away should tell you that there are going to be miniatures, and there are going to be very well executed miniatures. So. The different monsters are gorgeous. The different clans are gorgeous. The And they all integrate so well into the theme that is set in Legendary Feudal Japan. It has beautifully uh, illustrated uh, map area, which is so interesting because the the colors are so bright and it is so striking when you have it on the table and you have players playing different factions that are vastly vastly different colors they're almost like a neon and it's so striking to look at and i think that they did an amazing job um the artwork from adrian smith and then the the sculptures um from mike mcveigh are amazing just so so well done. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I like the the look of Simon Games in general, even when I don't like the game. But I think that Rising Sun got to to the top of it. Uh, it it looks like a piece of art in each of its form. The the miniatures are almost up there with the miniature collection quality. Uh, they are certainly the best board game miniatures that I have seen. Uh, the art is fantastic, a little gruesome, but never too much. Um, the the board is, has these pastel colors, which recall the actual more vivid colors of the miniatures. The fact that the player's miniatures are full colored. Um, at first, I was a little uh, thrown off because I'm used to gray, right? Gray with disc and things like that. But this is... <laughs> Not only a great choice practically, because you can see immediately, oh, these miniatures are yours and these are mine. Not only they, it allows to use the disc on the base to differentiate among the function of the miniatures rather than who they belong to, but also it makes the game look nicer. It's, it, there is the blue army and the, the yellow army and the green army. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the miniatures, you mentioned the plastic pieces, and indeed I care about those probably more than I care about the extra monsters. The extra monsters are always cool, the things that come with the stretch goals. But uh, the, the the strongholds, um, because there are four things, right? Five things. One is, as you mentioned, the, the tokens, the run-in, and those are neither plastic hexagons rather than cardboard, but I could probably live with it. Second, the coins. And again, I could probably live with the, the cardboard coins. The flags that mark where the fight is going on, they are very useful on a practical level, having them vertical rather than not. But the the two things that I, I cannot imagine playing without are the Mahjong tiles rather than cardboard to be shuffled when you draw your hand of possible actions and the strongholds on the board. You have these 3D castles and they are basically miniatures rather than flat tokens that get lost in a sea of miniatures. That's actually... I think they they that was a misplay on their part. Those should be in the basic version because that's a usability factor, right? It's not just fancy. Um, everything else is cool, but having the cardboard thing can get lost in the in the miniatures. Uh, and the theme, as you mentioned, is legendary Japan. So uh, they got a lot of flack because historically, I think there is a region that is called Edo, but Edo is the name of the capital, is the old name of Tokyo. Uh, to be fair, I know I might sound insensitive, but I think that insensitivity is not that. Um, this is also the history of how it came to be, right? Uh, Eric Lang grew up with his grandmother reading him these stories to show him that there was more than just uh, European mythology. And so, sure, it is a reinterpretation, but I think it comes from a place of love. Although, one of my favorite stories about this thing, do you know about the Kotai debacle? Mm-mm. So, at one point on VGG, midway through the campaign or shortly after, I don't remember, someone gets there and goes, without particularly polemicism, goes... Uh, so I am a little confused. I, I am an aficionado or a scholar of Japanese uh, folklore, and I recognize all of these monsters, although some have been reimagined to be game-compatible, com- right? They need to be all monsters that fight and do something. But I am a little confused about this Kotai thing. It's this angry monkey god. 
And there was, there is that we both own it, is this little miniature of a stretch goal of this little monkey. So apparently, when they were looking for stretch goals, they went to Wikipedia, to the page of uh, Japanese folklore monsters, and apparently a guy from Australia had put a line about a friend of his, uh, a Kotai, this monkey god, because this friend of his was very hairy, who gets very angry, especially when he's drunk. And they put it on Wikipedia, and someone at Simon just copied the line and ran with the graphic with the design of the miniature. And so now there is a thing in Rising Sun that is this guy, and they had like an interview, they sent him a copy, and I find that absolutely hilarious. Um, Obviously, it was shown as the, the... the problem of uh, Simon not caring enough about the culture they're using. And I'm, I don't want to make fun of these things. There is um, a problem with the, the using other cultures just as source of fun. But I think this is an honest mistake, right? My impression of it was they messed up. I have students who use Wikipedia and they don't realize that Wikipedia is not accurate. So it's not necessarily uh, being disrespectful. It's being not knowing that Wikipedia is not reliable. Um, but I find it amazing that someone in the world can point at the mini, that is a big airy monkey, and say someone from America or Singapore, wherever they were based at the time, uh, put me in a game and that's me. I find it hilarious. Um, okay, and sure, components are amazing. Pace and arc. Uh, so I think it, you know that, well, you do care about this a lot as well as I do. Uh, And I think that there is good and bad about this. So the arc is good. Things grow. Uh, You keep adding powers, but the powers become more significant so that even the things that you're adding during the third round are important. It also helps by the fact that you are trying to collect different places so you don't repeat the same battle every time. You're moving along the board, trying to get to the things that you haven't collected yet. The pace is amazing and bad, (laughs) meaning that the first part of each round, I find it super quick. I pick an action, everyone follows. Uh, My allies and myself do it a little better. Then we get to the next action and we do it again. And it's fast and quick. Each action is relatively simple. Then after three of those, we have a temple control thing where simply we get small bonuses. And again, it's fast and quick. And we do all of this seven times. And then we get to the war phase, which is at the same time the most interesting part, but also a little bugged down. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, so uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you have these auctions, right? And I find it interesting because it's a good way to bring in different powers. But there is a lot of coins, basically. So the, the in the auction, you're not trying to choose, oh, I have four figures and I'm putting two here, one here and one here, like you do, for example, in uh, Cry Havoc. Here is, you might have 17 coins and I might have 11. And we are going to 
do you are gonna participate in four battles and I'm going to participate in two. So maybe I'm using seven of my 11 coins. Okay, I do I want to divide them. I will put three on Sepuku and two on Ronin. So now wait, maybe Nathan is going five on Ronin. So I need to match him to five. Therefore you have two, do I put... And it takes a long time for decisions that in the end tend to be a lot of... Okay, sure, I put four rather than three. Let's hope that Nathan didn't put exactly four, right? And something like that. Um, so that feels like a lot of investment in, term, in terms of thinking power and time without a great payout, I think. What What is your impression of that, of that part? So I am really bad at that part. <laughs> I feel like every time, um, especially when I play with you, I feel like I am outbid by like one. And I'm like, how did he know for me? And so, and the weird thing is like, you process it so quickly. Like when we play, you will go, okay, I have, I have these to do. I have this, this coming up. uh, And then I'm going to set this, this, this. And then you usually are sitting there staring at me (laughs) like, okay, I'm, I'm all set. And then I'm sitting there agonizing over this decision because it, makes a huge difference sometimes the things that you're going to collect, either points or um, the little um, token for the region that you won the battle, or uh, there are certain things that you can play to, you know, make sure that you win or um, steal honor or what have you. So there's a lot to consider. And I feel like Sometimes people can get very bogged down in that. I feel like it, it. I I don't ever get frustrated with it. Uh, I know that it is part of the game, and it's a good part of the game, and it's an enjoyable part of the game. I just don't know that I've played it enough to really master how to find that balance and i think that's part of a good game to be honest i think part of of you know saying oh well you know i didn't do this this time i didn't put enough here so next time i need to remember that i need to do you know i need to focus on on this only instead of trying to be greedy and get all of these different things i need to focus on the one thing that i really want um and it's all it all comes down to different strategies and again the replayability of this game is is amazing yeah because absolutely. of all the different things that you have to consider i think that you you strike on it's not frustrating it's beautiful i think it's a genius thing uh again to have you you don't just have strength right is you you have things that you need to consider and what you care about is important i think that the problem stem from the fact that probably to make it a little easier not to add an additional step, they made the things that you bid for, with bid with money, which is the same thing that you use to buy powers and buy miniatures during the first part of the turn, which means the number of them spilled out. Because think if you were going into a battle, for example, and you had to put tokens equal to your strength, or you had five tokens, things like that. So sure, you can go, do I need to put two here or two here? But you have a limited amount. The problem is that when you have 11 or 17, you could spend 
two on this battle or you could spend nine, which means you could put seven on something or you could put one and all of the steps in between, as you were saying, do I put two or three or two? Wait, if I put three here, can I put four here? And so there is too much, I think, range in that. Yeah. Um, uh, but you 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 mentioned on uh, you touch on the next thing. All of this gives incredible replayability because this variety com co combined with the different sets and with the different monsters and with the different special powers at the beginning. Even if you play the same clan every time and you don't have to, there are six different ones. Uh, although I don't like one of them, but it's fine. Um, uh, gives an incredible replayability. Do you feel that beside the starting with uh, the different clans that you can also ful uh, fulfill or, or sorry, um, pursue different strategies in the game? First of all, leave the Fox clan alone. <laughs> I will leave it alone. I will leave it in the box. That's where I will leave it. Um, I like the Fox clan. But anyway... Uh, so, and I think that that works best with six, which is why you probably don't ever play with it. Fair enough. And it is designed to be the six clan. So, right. So, no, I think that, that I, I do think that the, the, in the starting, uh, clans do give you a bit of focus as in, um, you know, one person can fly around the board and go to different areas they're not limited by movement so there's incentive to spread out and and go for a lot of different things and i feel like it does give you some focus because in the beginning this game can be a little overwhelming uh one of the 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 clans just lets you choose whatever you want the uh, action. the action to be it you just turn a, a tile face down and that is the action for the turn which also means you choose what other people don't have access to which is great right so there's a lot so that one i feel like is a little less focused um i mean it gives you more options as far as the what you're going to do and what you're going to go for but um, like the the flying one has a very clear strategy. The one that that things are cheaper for you has a very clear strategy. Buy all the stuff. The um the turtle clan I feel like has a little bit less of a strategy other than like go for a lot of battles because yeah, because you're what was it. They are strong in battle, yeah. You're yeah, right. because the strongholds count towards your strength. So some of them, I feel like, don't have as clear of a focus. Um, so you are given more flexibility as far as what your overall strategy for the game is. Um, on, and then there's also people who play it, regardless of who the, the clan they are, um, and go for... <laughs> buy all the monsters or you know what have you so um you can really just kind of pick and choose what you want and yeah the replayability is is off the charts with this game yeah i think that the fact that the the strategies don't map directly onto the the powers like it's not that oh you can collect wood and there is one uh 
guy that gets more wood when you go for wood. So there are a couple that help you in battle, uh, but for example, the one that has discounts on cards, yes, but you can still go for monsters or go for battle powers or go for points things, right? Yeah. And the one that can fly around, does it mean that you use it to win one big battle every round or that you try to be in a bunch of different battles? Or the one that can choose, yeah, you can choose, but what do you choose? Do you choose to focus on uh, points during the war phase or points earlier? So the fact that there is no direct connection between one strategy and one power they they help, but they don't map on each other. I think it's it's great. Uh, designer and artist. I mean, there is so much to say, and also we have said it so often. Uh, so I will take the easy part and go with the artist, Adrian Smith. Uh, I have seen his work also in Blood Rage. I like him a lot. He has this not cartoony at all art that at the same time looks well done for a board game. Uh, it gets the right space. The art is evocative without being lost into a, or it's almost a painting, right? It, it, I mean, it's it's unpainted, but um, it looks like what it needs to look like. The monster looks like a monster. Uh, the, the board is clear. Um, I personally, I like this graphic and this uh, art much more than I like Blood Rage, which I really like, despite the fact that the general um, vibe of a Viking game resonates with me more than the general vibe of a samurai game. Mm -hmm. But I think um, Adrian Smith did an excellent job here. Uh, I also liked him in in Blood Rage. Uh, He did Hate, which I didn't get because the, the theme was too gruesome for me. Is he the one behind Ankh as well or not? I think he is, right? I'm not sure, actually. Um, while I check that, why don't you take the much taller order of uh, where does this fit into the designer's panorama? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, for Eric Lang uh, to have made this, it's not surprising, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very much the feel of his games and we've we've talked about him at length um if you are interested in in what we have more to say about eric uh we do have two episodes dedicated to his entire uh repertoire his entire uh collection and uh those are earlier in our in season one when we did a collector's uh, yeah, um, episode 17 and 18 of season one, if you want to th- check it out. Thank you. It is a, our designer series that we did, um, which we'll probably do again at some point for a different designer, obviously. But um, he... <laughs> we like him so much that we will do a redo of all of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not surprising uh, the mechanisms are a a little surprising they're very different if we compare them throughout his his repertoire um but it does seem like a natural evolution from blood rage for me at least so i think that it's a very solid game in his collection and i think that this is just a really 
really great game. The question that I guess everyone hears about those games is going to ask, and is a question I try to avoid, but how does this compare, not just in, but also which one we do prefer, but how does it compare to Blood Rage? I'll try to tackle it first. I think what Blood Rage does better is that the fact that all of the powers, right, whether it is personal powers, things that you do on the board, or battle resolution, all come from that draft. And so that's a strength of Blood Rage. And the other strength, I think, is the resolution at the end. The battle is just play one card. So it's the opposite of what I was saying before with this. Vice versa, Rising Sun brings more complexity, but good complexity. There is more depth. I think, to, to the game here. And second, the replayability is higher, right? The, the, the fact that there are a lot more things that you can do and that there are varying sets means that each game of um, Rising Sun will be significantly different from the one before, even before, but that's also there bringing in all of the different clans. Uh, this said, I think for me, uh, Blood Rage hedges it a little bit but i don't know if it is because of the game or because of how easier it is first of all i am i sit in a peculiar position in which anna doesn't like it uh doesn't like rising sun for reasons that baffle my mind and i'm not just making fun of her here i i have there are other games that she doesn't like that i do like but i understand why she doesn't like it on this one it eludes me but that makes it harder to play for me but also it's harder to play in that I can get people starting on Blood Rage in 10 minutes. I definitely cannot do that with Rising Sun, as you were saying before. So I think that to me, uh, Blood Rage is still the go-to uh, Eric Lang game, together with Star Wars R- R- LCG, but that's a different piece. Um, but, but I don't know if it is a, a function of the quality of the game or just of its accessibility? For me, I prefer Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. I will say, like, the the setup time is significantly longer in Rising Sun. Like, doubled, almost tripled of mm-hmm. the setup for Blood Rage. And that's not including explanation. I'm just talking about physically setting it up because you have so many customizable things that, again, are a testament to their replayability, but you have to pick which card set you're going to use. And in that case, you need to have the correct monsters out. Are you playing with the Kami expansion? How many players are do you have? You need all of those mini- miniatures set out. Then you need, you know, it. it's so many different things. But I have always found my plays of Rising Sun to be a little bit more rewarding as far as how I feel after them. I feel like it, we played an epic, you know, game that was dynamic and 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 it was difficult, but it was, you know, worth it. Whereas in Blood Rage, I feel like the game goes much more quickly. It's interesting because the um, turns on Rising Sun are a lot more fixed. Um, You know that you will get certain number of actions, and then you move on to the battle phase. Whereas in Blood Rage, the variable, the, uh, the 
the variable uh, turn amounts based on your rage and based on if someone steals your rage and if, you know, someone can just literally be left alone playing the game by themselves because the they still have rage left or they weren't included in certain battles or, you know, it doesn't it doesn't preclude other people from joining in on, on things if they take certain actions, but it can become, Oh, this person has all this rage now and they can just keep doing actions. So it, for me, that's where I feel like rising sun has significantly less downtime for people. Even if you aren't involved in battles in a battle that's happening at that moment, you are so invested because you may be in a battle with one of those people in the future um, because the battles are resolved in a sequential order that everyone knows what order they're going to be resolved in. Um, And so it, it will be important to you later on. Whereas in blood rage, I feel like the battle system, if someone wins, you're like, okay, they won. It's not, it doesn't really, really affect you. Um, other than the fact that they, you know, may have less people on the board, but the the very interesting way in which the battles affect other battles in Rising Sun makes it so much more interesting to me as a as a complete game. Fair enough. So um, I think we have talked about it at length um i'm uh, looking forward to your final thoughts if you have any uh i will just say that uh rising sun has this peculiar thing in which a very beautiful very pastel very artsy uh ensemble delivers a brutal bloodbath of monsters and powers and gods and even angry monkey gods from australia uh, and I think that it it's a great game, one that I don't play nearly enough, and I can't wait to play it again. So to answer your question before, uh, Adrian Smith is indeed the artist for Ankh. And on this confirmation of my being right, we can move forward. <laughs> if you enjoy area control games, if you like collecting all the powers, if you like... Uh, negotiation games at all if you like a game that is a bit of a longer length um, but feels very rewarding in the end i think this is a definite game you should check out it is it it does have a limit um, of a minimum of three players but i really think that you should strive to get four in for at least your first play to really feel the different uh, all the different things that the game has to offer. And I think that I would recommend this game to anybody, even people that aren't 100% gamers. I would caution to say that, you know, with non-gamers or gamers who have limited experience in the hobby area of gaming, that this can be overwhelming. But I do think that if you can get them on board and have the time to teach it to them, this is going to be well, well worth it. And 
the board game gambit takes no responsibility for the reaction of your non-gaming friends and <laughs> rising sun uh take it directly to nathan yes but yeah it is actually i am joking here i do think that sometimes we overestimate the the gap between gamers and not gamers right it used to be the case that big games like in the 80s and the 90s people would buy the game and play the game right <laughs> so now i actually agree with you that it can be taught everything can be taught and, and it's, it's gonna be fun not surprisingly given that we were talking about rising sun uh, we decided to talk about uh area control games for our topic today and usually i like to start with the definition of what it means but i must say that i am a little stumped with area control Obviously, it might involve it must involve some kind of an area on the board, but what to control it means seems not to be clear, not just to me, but to the collective mind of BGG, either of Board Game Geek, because it seems to go between places where you have a majority, so having more than others, places where you take it and not someone else, so occupying a space. And straight up having military strength, usually represented by miniatures or tokens. Did you solve this dilemma uh, one way or another, or did you add a more encompassing approach? <laughs> I kind of just went with the multiple people trying to get one spot, and based on how many things you have in that spot, that will reap you some benefit if you have the most. That was what I tried to go with. And I think that that is the like basic, basic definition of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it works. Um, I, I think there are the very different ways of doing that. One is, for example, of having one big difference is whether uh, places are connected on a map or whether places are different pools, right? I'm thinking, for example, of a game uh, like Courtier. I don't know if you have ever seen it. I think you have played I've it. played it. Yeah. So Courtier, for example, it's definitely an area control game, although the areas are people. It's by Philippe Dubarry for AG. And it's a game from 2012. It was in the Tempest line. But the idea is that you're controlling these people, but people don't bleed into each other, right? So you cannot, with the accept of very rare effects, move across the border of a king into a senator. So if you are investing on the king, you're not investing in the center. Uh, while other games do so in more of a map base, right? Mission Red Planet or a lot of the fighting games, you have areas in which the, the physical connection on the board matters. Um, there are also places that do a little bit of both. I'm thinking, for example, of Twilight Struggle, where adjacency matters but not for the control of a specific place. And so, depending on how you elaborate this, these things, whether it is uh, who's there, or whether it is who's stronger there, or whether it is who's stronger there can do something to gain control of it, like in a battle game, that means that area control can mean a lot of different things. And I feel that there is a nuance between the Many different games use worker placement like we did last week. And area control can mean a lot of different things because it's true that worker placement games 
can feel very different because of all of the rest. But the worker placement idea is something that I can uh, square with. While area control itself tends to play very differently in different uh, games. I think that one of the big, big divides is whether people can stay in the same place at the same time or whether they will be pushed out, whether it's people or cubes or miniatures. And I think that creates a very different uh, feeling. Mm -hmm. If they cannot, if there is a moment where they will be one or the other, you go towards conflict. You go towards a game that involves war and fighting, etc. If instead they can stay there, but whoever has the most as a majority, then you have a more peaceful interaction, less direct confrontational game. And I think along that divide, most games end up one way or another. Take, for example, a game like Samurai by Ryan Agnizia, which I know we have played, that's a game where the 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 feeling of it might be uh, again very pastel, and you place your token on a spot, and you simply place your token, and then you I place my token, and then you place your token. But then a moment comes where we surround the city. Uh, it's Rainernitia, so very uh, mechanical, very mathematical. Whoever has the most around the city takes the token, and so all of a sudden that sense of we are there together evaporates. And that makes it much more conflict-like than it looks on the surface. And I feel that that back and forth, I think people tend to like one or the other. I like a little bit of both. I think I tend to find the ones that are based on majority without conflict a little boring from time to time. Uh, But at the same time, sometimes the resolution can feel a little rushed. So I don't know where where I end up on on that divide. And I don't know if it's a divide that even matters, but... (laughs) <laughs> i i like both sides of the coin okay i think i think it depends on who you're playing with because i know people i know people personally who don't particularly like conflict they prefer the ones that are area ma- majority where you can all be there but it's whoever has the most versus the ones that are are you know conflict based so I think it depends on who you're playing with. Okay. Um, this said, whenever we will move to our top three or whatever, I decided for today to make it uh, easier for me to take out those where you fight because I had a list of 15 and I needed to get to three. So I decided that fighting was a good uh, divide. So all of the Blood Rage, the Rising Sun, the Small World, the Rex, the Conquest, all of those are out for me. Um which I know they are probably not for you, but I needed I needed a <laughs> guideline, and that uh, that became my guideline. Well, you like area control, like fighting games, a lot more than me, I would say. Uh, I don't know. You like Mazo? What? What? Which yeah. ones do I like that you don't like? No, no, no. Not that you like more of them. I think that you just like the genre as a whole more. Um, It's interesting because there are some of my favorite games that fall in that genre. Vice versa, whenever I see a new one, I usually have no interest in it. And even take Blood Rage, for example. It took me a while to play it because it's a genre that doesn't jive with me. The idea of the fighting doesn't 
doesn't get to me. Usually I like fighting games in two players, uh, like an army against another army and things like that, uh, a mage against another mage. So it's interesting because I, I think that these four, Rex, Small World, and Blood Rage and Rising Sun, are the ones that I that I do like. Um, I tend to think that I like them despite uh, fighting being so prominent. Um, but mm-hmm. but it's up for debate. Uh, but I notice, for example, that whenever something new is announced, Battle for Rokugan or uh, War Game or anything like that, I don't even look at them. I, I'm not interested in them. Um, so I'm I'm curious what is that made those few not just work for me, but work very well for me. But yeah, to me, I think that making a list of 10 dudes on the map conflict games that I like would... I don't know if I can get to 10. Um, I, I would probably... <laughs> I mean, even not just my 10 favorites, I... I I would have to throw in things like Risk to make make it to a list of 10 fighting on a map kind of games. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the games that you were interested in? Okay, so I will start with... How many are we doing? Three? Sure. So I will start with Mission Red Planet, which I mentioned before. Uh, the game is normally... Uh, mentioned because of its uh, role selection, secret role selection simultaneous. But what you're doing is a lot of controlling areas and what you're trying to do is going and controlling areas. And it's interesting because you have some ways of affecting the map once you're there, but a lot of it is before because you are filling up spaceships, steampunk spaceships that will go to a planet, to Mars. Uh, And so you're trying to pre-plan your area control, uh, I think is interesting. I I do think that the game is made by the part that is not area control, but the area control works is simple enough to support all of this uh, very well. So my number three is Mission Red Planet, uh, which is by Bruno Catala. Okay. Um, so my number three is Ethnos mm-hmm. from Paolo Mori from Simon, which interestingly enough, contra uh, contradicts what I said earlier about miniatures, <laughs> because this is not a miniatures game. A lot of set collection, and you're placing um, tokens on the board. Uh, there is no conflict per se, but it you are going for area majority in different regions, and I think that this game is is quick. It's it's a very it's very stripped down to to very uh simplistic area control it's just whoever has the most and that's it <laughs> you know so um when i think of that that uh mechanism that really is what you know hits home for me i know you played it but I don't know if you liked it per se. I like the idea of it much more than I like the game, meaning that uh, the idea of your collecting troops and the more you collect, the more the effect does things. I liked it. The way the game worked with that, oh, I will draw a card. Oh, this works. This doesn't work. Um, I didn't like the that wasn't really a drafting the the part of the card selection uh really didn't jive for me mm-hmm. 
but and also it's ugly but that's beyond the point <laughs> but that was ethnos my number two is a game that i don't have here with me it's in italy uh, not because i don't like it but because we needed some good games to have there when when we used to go there more often i feel like now it will be coming here next time we are able to visit Italy. And it's uh, Revolution by Philippe Dubarry, the same person who did Coutier um, that I mentioned before. So apparently uh, Area Control does well. The art is by Will Schuvner and is by, I think, Steve Jackson Games uh, in the US. Um, and it's a game that is all about Area Control and it's a double air control. Not only you are controlling an air on the board, but also you do a little bit like a battle of, of Rising Sun each turn. There are 15 rolls and you bid on different rolls and you reveal. And if you have the majority of the bid, you need to be the winner of the bid on each of those things. You resolve it and you get um, a lot of uh, a lot of points and you, you, you put things on the board and you're trying to co- uh, control different places and it's fast it's quick uh it can be incredibly frustrating in a fun way when you bump with someone else and you just get wiped out because if you bid exactly the same no one gets it and so you could potentially match exactly what another player is doing and neither of you gets anything and someone else ripes the, uh, collects the benefits and that's revolution that looks interesting. It's it's nice. It has this thing where uh, you can you have gold, blackmail, and force, and force trumps anything else, and blackmail trumps gold. But the, you still use the others for uh, tiebreaker. So if I put one force and you put three blackmail into gold, I win. But if I put a, a force and you put a force, then we look at how much blackmail we put, and then we look at how much gold we put. So there is an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic there. It's it's simple, right? It, it, and sometimes it can get a little longer because the, the way the, the game triggers is when the board is full. And sometimes you... Now there is only one location open and only some of the places can get that location. And so do I bid there or do I just ignore there and try to get points elsewhere? But if everyone gets that, uh, the game can get a little longer. Uh, but it is it is fun. Interesting. I will check it out. I'm sure Brian owns it. <laughs> Very like it. Um, so my number two game is going to be the Stalford Dynasty. Nice. Nice one. So that is from Andreas Setting and from Z-Man Games. So um, it's Again, another very, very boiled down area control. You are going for majorities in areas. Other people can be there. There's no conflict. It is a game that lasts over five rounds. Each person has three actions per round. And there's an interesting little um, track that um, plays from the like top to bottom. Um, and it's, I like it. The because there's only just two actions. It's like the move to play action or the supply action. And you are getting different things. And and it's it's very simple, but it's very solid. I've only played it with two. 
um, which is I I like area con- area uh, control games with two because it's a very tug of war situation where you're like, OK, well, I need to secure this. But do they actually want to go for that or do they? So it's a lot of it. it the board state is constantly changing, but your only focus is the other player versus sometimes when it's four players and it goes around. And then by the time it comes back to you, the board is completely different. There's nothing you can do. Sometimes that can be a little frustrating for me with area control games, but uh, this, this one is, is very nice. I like it. I haven't played it in a while. I think it's much better with more. That's partially why I didn't, play it uh when we played it with two we liked it then we played it with more and i decided i always want to play it with with four or five um this is one that i don't mind with five it's uh the game that i wouldn't say it put uh andreas steading on the map for me because after that i didn't connect him to to this game i just knew that i liked the south of dynasty and it was until gugong that i noticed him as a designer but i really like it uh, it does a few things very innovatively, but it's still based on majorities and controlling areas and when you go where, and I like it a lot. Uh, yeah. So before I get to my number one, um, I wanted to mention a few games that get got lost for different reasons. One is Rialto and Xidit. They both feature uh, area control in a very prominent way, but it's not what draws me to them. So I left them outside, although Rialto has very physical area control as well. But the one game Mm -hmm. that would be at the top of my list, if it weren't for the fact that I don't play it physically anymore, is Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is the perfect area control game. Not only each area on the board is a conflicted area control in two players, so you you would like that part, but also each of them builds into a continent and controlling continents is also important. Only you don't count pieces, you count control areas. So if you control five nations and I control three, you have control of that continent. It's a little more complicated than that because there are battlegrounds and things like that. The point is that all of this makes it for a perfect game to play on an app. Uh, the app takes uh, takes control of everything. You you play the cards. And so it's a game that I don't... I, I think I still own it. It's somewhere, but it's a game that I haven't played in the physical version in a few years, so it felt weird to put it. My number one, therefore, my number one is Seven Ronins. Uh, it's the one uh, area control game that I own that is meant to be for two players. It's not just... Uh, an air control, it has also a strong element of, of bluffing and trying to understand what your uh, opponent is trying to do. Uh, it's very asymmetric. One player plays the Ronins, which are like in the Seven Samurais by uh, Kurosawa. Uh, you are uh, defending a village against the ninjas which is the other player the ninjas are a lot and they're just tokens you have like 40 something of them while the samurais are character with special powers but there are only seven of them so secretly you choose where you want to send either your troop if you are the ninjas or your characters if you are the ronin you reveal it and basically the number of the ninjas is trying to overcome the wounds the strength of each ronin so it's very area based if you can break through with the ninjas and take control of an area, you get additional benefits and that can spiral down to try and win you the game. 
and I love it. I think it's the best game of uh, the Gray Fox games put out. And yes, I include Champions of Midgard into that. And I think it's an amazing little game, and it's definitely my favorite area control game. Hmm. I've never played it. Oh, I, I love it. Anna, Anna doesn't like to play it with me because she she says that I'm sneaky. But I love it. <laughs> um, so my number one kind of goes against the, the conflict thing, um, but it's Scythe. I, I think that Scythe is... It, because it has so much more than conflict. Conflict is a portion of the game, but it's not. It's not the main focus, um, in my opinion. I think that there's so much more to the to the game than what is revolving around the conflict. That I think it's such a good game for area control because you're you're trying to get the different areas and they'll score you points in the end, but it's based on how well you do in in um the friendship or what is it called? The little heart popularity. thing. Popularity. Popularity. <laughs> the little heart thing. I got you. Um thank you. So uh yeah I think that that is very interesting. It's very, I don't know how to describe it other than the game is, is a super solid game in and of itself. And I like the area control portion of it. But the funny thing about it is that I often forget that it's an area control game till the end when we're scoring. I, I do feel though that uh, it's not just you. Uh, I mean, it, it... It feels weird because I really like side, as you know. I'm not one of, I'm not a mono side player. Like I know some some friends of mine had at some point become where where they they would play only that, but I really like it and I will play it anytime people want to play it. Um, mm-hmm. I feel though that it's not just you. Uh, area control inside seems to be something that you do because you have to and doesn't really drive the game because. Usually, even when you fight in sight, which is not as common, but you don't really fight to get control of the area. You fight because you want the star or because you want to push them back or because you need to get someplace specifically. And then you're just trying to get space because that's points. And so I feel that the reason it didn't make my list is that the area control in sight is the least interesting part of sight to me. It's just... Or try to have as many territories as you can, but you don't fight that much. Oh, yeah, I will send a worker there. And sure, I will build a building there. But it's very straightforward because you need a point. So between the fact that there is no majority uh, and the fact that it's so offer after thoughty in, in the game experience, if not in the game scoring... Um, that's why it didn't jump to me. But you're absolutely right. I mean, scoring, you can score up to three points, I think, for territory, and that can be a huge chunk of your winning score. Oh, so yeah. I absolutely see your point. It's just that to me, it doesn't read like an air control. Um, interesting enough, usually I try to mention one game that does uh, the mechanism that we do in a way that I don't like. It's hard with air control because usually in games that I don't like, 
the area control that the area control is not the area control part that I don't like. It's just I don't like everything else that goes with it. So I don't have. Um, I cannot end on a sour note today, um, contrary to my pessimistic <laughs> beliefs. Um, but yeah, I I like the. I was surprised to see how many area control adjacent games I I like. It's not surprising to me that most of them don't involve direct conflict. A few others that I consider that were Royals, which is a ticket to rights level of complexity. Uh, Eight Minute Empire Legends, where conflict is very abstract. Uh, Coutier, Dominare, where you move cubes along. But uh, so yeah, the, the conflict ones didn't didn't jump to me in terms of air control. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I have. Yeah. So. Um... Obviously, I didn't include things like Blood Rage and um, Rising Sun, which we've already talked about, but they're they're also really solid games. It's just when I thought of area control, I didn't really think of those games. Also, so. because then, especially for things like uh, Blood Rage, um, you 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 can have more than someone else, but is not capitalized until you don't. Right? There is never a moment in which having the most is important. Well, I guess in the scoring of the missions, but again, the reason is you put people on the map because you want to trigger a battle, um, which is not uh, so much about controlling and positioning. It's just an accumulation of troops ready to fight. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, okay. So I think that leads us to the end of today's episodes. We are um, we're happy to be done with the episode, at least uh, for my part, because it was fun. It was also two hours long. So um, as always, you can find us on Instagram at Board Game Gambit or Facebook, Board Game Gambit. Um, and then if you like our uh, content, please feel free to leave comments anywhere you find it, and we will get back to you as soon as possible. We are so thankful for all the comments and supportive um, notes of encouragement that we have received. So if you have anything, it really makes a huge difference. So if you could do that, we would be over the moon. So as always, signing out, it's me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.